Welcome to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Before I welcome on Robert Kerbeck this morning, I just wanted to take a moment to remind regular listeners and alert new listeners that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer you some fun writing add-ons. In addition to our usual programming, folks who support the show can get writing tips, writing prompts, and even free books delivered to your door. There are a few other goodies in there too. There are four tiers to choose from, and you can see all the benefits associated with each one, visit www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing, all one word. Whatever level you choose, it helps. If the show has boosted your writing in some way, if you've gotten some useful writing advice or tips, consider this a great way to say thanks. We appreciate it all, and we just want to keep doing what we do. On with the show. Today, I welcome back Robert Kerbeck, last on the show in 2019 with Malibu Burning. Today, we talk about the art of memoir, finding the story, the nuts and bolts of writing, and the secrets behind publishing, all in the context of Robert's latest memoir, Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Enjoy the conversation. Robert, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me, my friend. Hey, I'm going to do the full disclosure. I might have done this last time with listeners and mentioned that you and I met, I kind of now forget what year it was, but it was like 2017 or something. I think so, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop. So I met you as a writer, and I'm sure you mentioned then that you were or had been a Hollywood actor, but I feel like you left out the corporate espionage part, <laughs> <laughs> part of your career. I think I did. I think I definitely did. So knowing you for five years and, and following all of your stories, a lot was new to me in here. So I'm going to let you lay down the foundation for us and set up the memoir and, you know, take us inside Ruse and the, the scope of the story. Yeah, thank you. So my hometown is Philadelphia and uh, my great grandfather came from Armenia to Philadelphia and sold horse carriages before automobiles were invented. Then my grandfather took over the dealership, then my father took over the dealership, and then I was expected to take over the dealership. And when I was in college in Philadelphia, I got bitten with the acting bug and I really fell in love with acting. I was an English major at college, but I really fell in love with acting. I couldn't sit still long enough to write. And when I graduated college, I, I really wanted to move to New York, but I was scared. You know, I didn't know anybody that had been an actor. You know, my family was not an artistic family. It was full on, you know, business entrepreneurs. And so I went to work for my father because I didn't know what else to do. And I just found the kind of trickery and dishonesty of car sales not really to my liking. And finally, after I got a couple of breaks and I got hired for a couple of things, one of which was this MTV video that David Fincher directed for this band, The Hooters, and they had a new album coming out and the lead single was called Johnny B. And David Fincher hired me to play Johnny B in this music video. And this is back in the day when being the lead in a music video was a really big deal. And that kind of gave me the confidence, like, wait a second, you know, I'm getting hired, you know, something like this. And so then I did, I moved to New York, but of course I needed a survival job. And who stumbles into a job as a corporate spy? But that's exactly what happened. And of course, it's a, quite a bit ironic that I end up doing something that is far more dishonest than car sales. And that's kind of the setup of the book. So set us in time. This is, this is the 80s. Yeah, very late 80s, really 90s, okay. you know, really 90s. And I'm in New York and I'm 
you know, a working actor, you know, I'm doing a hit off Broadway play. Callista Flockhart and I are the two leads. We get a rave review in the New Yorker. You know, my picture's on the front page of the New York Times arts art section, Sunday paper, um, you know, and I have an agent and I'm getting jobs and, you know, and, and everything's going good. And I've got in the background, this little corporate spying job, which seems to be relatively innocuous. You know, we're getting information on companies. Most of it at the time was personnel related because we forget, but there was a time when information was private. <laughs> and uh, we live in an era now where you can find out you know, pretty much anything or most things. But you know, back in the day, I, I say in the book, I was LinkedIn before LinkedIn was invented. And so the idea of knowing the organization of a company, you know, who ran a team, who was on the team, who the best people were on the team, the internal rankings of team members, you know, if it was a sales team, you know, what was the order, you know, who was number one, who was number two, who was number three, if it was uh, traders, you know, the same, the same kind of thing. And so we would find that information out. And then in most cases, those individuals would get recruited and offered better jobs. So, you know, at the time, it seemed kind of relatively innocuous, the ploys we used, and we were a student doing a paper, and, you know, we had these kind of rather tame ploys. But as time went on, eventually I moved to Los Angeles to further my acting career, and I did a whole bunch of uh, really cool TV shows. I killed George Clooney on a show called Sisters so that he could move on to a show you never heard of called ER. (laughs) I worked with O.J. Simpson the week before he became America's most famous double murderer, you know, so I had all of these kind of Forrest Gump moments in my acting career. And, and I kept thinking I was going to drop the ruse. I didn't need the ruse. I was starting, I was making money as an actor. I was almost making a living as an actor, like, you know, just like, you know, like right there. And I booked a couple of pilots and none of these pilots ever went, you know, they didn't get picked up. And I remember when I was working with George Clooney on Sisters, he was telling me the story of his career. And when he booked ER, he had done six pilots, none of which had gotten picked up. And he really felt that getting hired, somebody hiring him, it was the kiss of death for a show. And he really, you know, it's a really kind of a fascinating moment in time because he was sounding very desperate and very unsure of his future, which, you know, we we would laugh at now. We think that's ludicrous because, you know, he, you know, he was off to the races with the ER, but that's the position he was in at that time. And then only a few years later, I found myself in a similar position, except I didn't get my ER. (laughs) And instead, I went deeper and deeper into the world of corporate espionage. And it's such a great capture of time because kind of none of this stuff could happen now. As you say, information is readily available. LinkedIn is out there. But also just the, the culture of those TV shows is a bygone era. It was such an innocent time, the 80s and the 90s. So it's fun to spend time in that time period because you really set the stage of, of what that felt like. I mean, the O.J. Simpson aerobic video and all of it is, <laughs> in addition to the great storytelling, it is it really captures a period of American, I don't want to say innocence, but kind of. I mean, you know, it was it was just a different time and you you captured that really well. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, one of my goals in writing it, and I I had a number of goals, uh, but one of them was to write, you know, an honest book about lying. Uh, That was one of them. And another one was to write a book that was fun to read because, you know, coming out of COVID, COVID was, you know, hard for me and my family. I had a high school senior in the house. And uh, as I tell people, the wheels fell off my child, child that I never had any trouble with, you know, severe depression, you know, inability to get out of bed, do any schoolwork, you know, because this COVID thing just, you know, hit these kids so hard. 
I, and I, so I'm, and I know a lot of other people have had similar stories. And of course, many people, unfortunately, you know, died from the, from the virus. So I wanted to write a book coming out of COVID that was fun to read. You could get some laughs out of you. You'd be really excited to turn the page. And, and I hope that's what I did. Was this your pandemic project? Did you do this during COVID? I did. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I didn't start it. I had actually started the book probably around the time we met and I read uh, an excerpt at the Vermont College of Fine Arts Postgraduate Writers Conference. I think they need a shorter title, but it's a great conference. And um, I read a chapter there and it was about my father and you know, my father, I, I, I described my father as the, as the heart of this book. And I read a chapter there and corporate spying was part of it. It wasn't the main focus, but it was in there. And people went crazy about the corporate spying. You know, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on us. But most people had no idea that major corporations were spending tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other. And so a lot of the writers there were saying, you got to write that, you know, you got to write that story. And so I started to. And then before I finished the book, we had that terrible fire in 2018, the Woolsey fire. Some people call it the Malibu fire that burned half of my town of Malibu down and uh, two thirds of my neighborhood, 17 of 19 houses on my street. And my wife, child and I fought the fire and saved our home. And I wrote an essay about that for the LA Times and that turned into the book Malibu Burning. And then when Malibu Burning was finished, I went back and, and finished Ruse. So tell me about your decision to write it from the perspective of Throughout the book, you make kind of the point of, I'm a little worried about putting this out there and mm. what's okay to disclose, what isn't okay to disclose. So I, I don't know if there's a statute of limitations. There is. Yes, <laughs> there definitely is. I, yeah, thank goodness. And again, this is funny. Remember this, writers. When you're at a writer's conference, you're going to meet people and people are coming from all different walks of life. And, uh, and keep that in mind because you never know when, when one of those walks of life is going to be be very valuable to you in your writing. And so in this case, one of the uh, gentlemen that was at uh, VCFA was an attorney in the fraud department of one of the very organizations and entities that would come after someone for uh, potential crimes that you know I may or may not have committed. <laughs> and so I had, and he, we became friends, of course, I didn't know I was going to write Ruse and I you know, didn't really know a whole lot about his career. But of course, when I finished the book, I asked him if he would take a look at it, and he he was very kind and read the book and just had me make a couple of minor changes to just make it crystal clear that this rusing that I did was in the past and you know pretty far in the past, um, so that I was you know the statute of limitations was was passed. It's so funny because as I was reading it, I was like, it doesn't seem that bad. Jail? Mm. What? You know, you're not going <laughs> to jail. You're just telling. You're just you know you're. You're telling yeah, well, a white you, lie. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, and I think that's what makes it, what I hope makes it fun for the reader and also make the reader, you know, because, you know, if you're a con man that is, you know, ripping people off and, and stealing people's money or credit cards or, or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, that's tough to kind of pull yourself back from that in terms of, you know, having people say, oh, I, you know, I found that book fun, you know, right, um, right. you know, and, and at the end of the day, most people don't feel a lot of uh, sympathy or empathy for major American corporations, because we have seen over and over, especially uh, Wall Street banks, uh, where I did the majority of my rusing, you know, they don't really care a whole lot about us. I mean, Wells Fargo, you know, not long ago had the scandal where they were opening multiple phony accounts, 15, 20, 30 accounts in an individual's name. Right. Um, right. And then, of course, the crash of 2008 was for sure exacerbated, if not caused by the greed of Wall Street. 
So, you know, the idea of, of getting secret information from Wall Street firms and banks, you know, not too many people are going to be bummed out about that. But to do that, we were rusing human beings. We were rusing real people, you know, and, you know, one of the things I did in my rusing is I really targeted the executives themselves. Mm. For one thing, what I found was that the executives were far easier marks than the junior people, the assistants, the receptionists. You know, there was a, a, a bravado about uh, some of these executives. And of course, back in the day, they were more male than female. And so I played that and I utilized that uh, to my advantage. And so, yeah, I didn't feel when I was doing that, I didn't feel as, uh, you know, as, as troubled because, you know, these are individuals that are making millions, if not tens of millions of dollars a year. Well, and to go back to that prior point about the innocence of the 1990s, I mean, now that we've lived through, you're right, the, the crash of 2008, the Bernie Madoff scandals, the, you know, people really getting swindled. I right. think our tolerance now also has changed, you know, as the culture of television has changed, I think that our kind of collective unconscious has changed around these issues as well. And maybe, maybe that's not such a good thing, but yeah, <laughs> I was like, Robert's fine. He's a nice guy. Yeah. yeah he's, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you know, um, right. I don't mind seeing Wells Fargo getting screwed. Yeah. It's fine with me. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. So, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, but, you know, uh, you know, I, I deal with the moral issues and ethical issues in the book because, you know, I'm not proud of what I did. I think it is a hell of a fun, crazy story, and it certainly shows what I was willing to do to support my art. But, I, you know, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else. I wouldn't recommend this career path. I just stumbled into it, and then I kind of got in a little too deep. That's part of the book, and fortunately was able to get out without going to jail. I'm glad you used the phrase Forrest Gump because I had the exact same inclination. In fact, I think I said to my husband as I was reading, I was like, this guy's like Forrest Gump. He's everywhere next to everybody at the right time. So you, <laughs> you know, it's almost unbelievable. Like I'd say in fiction, look, no character is going to share a stage with OJ Simpson a week before he killed Nicole and pick up a random phone call from Yoko Ono and take JLo out on a date. And so yeah, get, get, get hit on by Kevin Spacey. Yes. Get hit on by Kevin Spacey. Right. Right. So I don't know if this was bubbling around in your mind. I mean, corporate espionage aside, was there ever a time that you were like, I just have to write this story. I mean, this is, this is crazy stuff. Yeah. Well, I think what, what happened is, you know, my journey, uh, you know, it pretty well, but uh, for your listeners, you know, I, I was an English major, but then I left it pretty quickly and I never really did any writing. And, you know, was an actor. And so when I circled back, you know, after kind of my personal crash, you know, which is in Ruse, the thing that I, you know, at one point I was so low that I, I wrote a suicide note, but it wasn't me writing the suicide note. It was this character. And it just came out of me one day. I I'd met this individual that I, I, he was just such a memorable character. I said, man, somebody needs to write a book about that guy. And then one day I did, and I started writing and was really passionate about coming back to my creative roots, uh, especially after everything I'd been through, and started writing short stories. And to my surprise, the short stories started getting published, and I started you know, going to conferences and, and, and honing my craft. And then I started getting some essays published too, so some nonfiction, and a number of the nonfiction pieces had to do, two of them, in fact, ended up being chapters in the book, the O.J., was originally published as an essay and the Yoko Ono uh, scene with my father. Uh, somebody told me that, that there should be a punk band, my father and Yoko Ono. Um, <laughs> Great. 
So, so those two chapters were originally published as essays in literary magazines. So I kind of started to have like the framework of, okay, well, you know, boy, that whole chapter worked and this whole chapter worked. And, and then I, I knew the corporate spying, I could kind of weave in, you know, so you kind of have a corporate spying chapter, then you have an acting chapter, then you have a spying chapter and you see how they're all tied together as the you know, book moves through my life. Well, that brings us to a big question about writing memoir, which I think a lot of memoirists or aspiring memoirists struggle with, which is finding the story, because mm. you really can let things spin out. You know, it's not an autobiography, it's a memoir. Right. And so it has to be guided by certain themes and certain recurring motifs and all of that. And, and as you say, you know, you weave in a lot of the personal. I mean, you, we meet your wife in here. We meet you meeting your wife in here. We, mm. you know, we watch your father pass away you know, your son is born. So there's, there's a lot of personal stuff woven in with this corporate espionage stuff that any one of those under another writer's hand could risk pulling you off the, the narrative track. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about finding what this story is, because it's almost guided more by theme. And we can get more into this later too. I mean, it's a, it's a wild ride, but there are really some heavy, humane, universal failure, success, redemption, you know, big, heavy themes in here that you don't hit the reader over the head with, but that's, that's really underpinning a lot of these stories. So tell me a little bit about, yeah, finding the, finding the through line and knowing, you know, I've fallen off the track. This is too far afield, mm -hmm. all those kinds of issues. Yeah. I mean, I run a writer's group in Malibu, the uh, Malibu writer's circle. And when we started the Malibu writer's circle, you know, man, almost 10 years ago now, most of the authors were writing fiction. And now it's pretty crazy. Everyone's writing a memoir. <laughs> you know? And so I have a lot of experience, not only in writing my own memoir, but reading other people's memoirs. And I think the biggest thing I, I would tell anyone listening out there that is writing a memoir is give us your greatest hits. We don't need to know everything. We don't want to know everything. You got to pick the pivotal moments, the, the, uh, the tense moments, the heightened moments, the terrible moments, right? You got to give us the greatest hits. And so I kind of knew that right away. And fortunately, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, you know, I'm a corporate spy and I was an actor that had these real experiences with people that are extremely famous, you know? So I, I knew I had those two things going for me. And then of course I, I added a lot of the stuff in with my family and my father. And so I, I kind of knew I had something with that. I will say that as I was going through the book, I had remembered to keep the corporate spying stuff in there because at the end of the day, you know, there've been many actors that have written tell-all books and there's certainly many people that are writing uh, memoirs about their family, right? So that's not really um, new, new territory, not to say that it can't be spectacular and fascinating and interesting because it can and it is. But the corporate spying, I knew nobody had written about that. That was unknown territory. And I just had to remind myself. And I think at one point, there's a, there's a chapter where I, I use, occasionally I would use accents to get information because, you know, I was an actor. And, and at one point I put on this German accent, you know, and um, these international firms, are, you know, are, have offices all over the world. So I would be an executive, a major executive in the Frankfurt office. Oh, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt. They have the emergency here, the meeting with the U.S. regulators, and we need this information, you know, and I would do this thing. And, you know, that ploy was so outlandish. It was so ridiculous that I never had anybody not believe it once. 
every single time the executive, oh, hey, Gerhard, you know, how's it going? You know, and they were more than willing to do anything and everything to help me. And I think in the in like an early draft of the book, I didn't have that German accent scene in there, which of course now, because I've, I've read that scene aloud at a couple of uh, events and people are just laughing and just, you know, blown away by it. So I, that was one I added in. And, I, and as I was going through the book, I was realizing, you know, the corporate spying is the hook. The corporate spying is the thing no one's seen. I have to make sure I keep enough of that in the book. And so that's something I would advise is, you know, you when you're writing a memoir, you know, you're going to have something that is pretty unique about your life that maybe hasn't been written about or hasn't been written about a lot or hasn't been written about in a way that you're writing it, writing about it. And you got to make sure you don't, that, 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 that's got to be, you know, in the movie business, we'd call that the A story, right? That's the primary story. And then maybe this other thing is, is the secondary story, the B story, you know? And so for me, I had to constantly, constantly make sure I was keeping corporate spying around. What point did the title come? Because I feel like once you had this title, it would be much easier to keep that in your head. Like, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about ruse. We're talking about lying from, you know, Wall Street to Hollywood. And once you'd have that, it'd be kind of a guiding principle that you could, you know, tack up to your computer and say, keep writing towards this. Well, and I think titles are really important. And, you know, I, I, I'm constantly, you know, hammering the people in my writer's group and they sometimes get frustrated and upset with me because, you know, they're like, well, I don't have a title yet. I'm like, I, you don't have to have, it doesn't have to be the finished title, but it's a, it's a marker. It's a signpost, you know? And so pick some sort of title that gets you excited to like put you in a direction. And so I always knew that the title of the book was Ruse, but my editor actually came up with the lying, the American dream from Hollywood, to wall street, which of course is fantastic. Um, so I, I can't take credit for that. That was the editor. And, and of course, you know, he, he was seeing the finished book. So he was kind of seeing, you know, lying, the American dream from Hollywood, to wall street. Cause that's, that's what it was. But I think titles are critically important and they can really help. Like you said, they can really help, you know, kind of sort of write the story for you when you when you get a title that that's what you want to what you want to say or what you want to write about the other thing that i think is remarkable is it's hard to write about work and i mean this was your job and so usually if you sit down with somebody at their job you know a lot of mundane crap happens at work that not necessarily people would be (laughs) excited to read about and so to sustain i mean of course corporate espionage is way more interesting job than most of us have. Nonetheless, you really had to, you know, you're sitting at the phone all day. You're sitting (laughs) literally in someone's kitchen table at their apartment on the phone, making these calls. And so, and I assume a lot of the calls kind of go the same way. And so you had to find new, fresh ways to engage to, I mean, I know you were coming up with different personas to make these calls, but to sustain that, uh, you know, I don't know if that was difficult or if there was just enough wealth of material there that, you know, it was, it's easy to pull that off to sit at a desk with somebody and keep it interesting. Yeah. I mean, there is a wealth of material. There really is. I mean, there, there were a couple of ploys that we used that didn't make it into the book and, you know, you know, knock on wood, fingers crossed, Ruse is pretty far along the road uh, in terms of development to be a TV series. And so I'm really hoping that some of these other ploys, which you know didn't make it in the book, will find their way into a series because they're a lot of fun. What I did in the book is I tried to have all different examples of ruses that we did. So I have early on, I'm being trained by the women that were doing the job that trained me. 
when uh, this this woman hired me, um, Leona, she had this business, you know, corporate spying business, and um, she hired actors because you know you know actors obviously had a, a special skill set to do this job, but she only hired women because she thought only women could do the spying and. My buddy, Pax, I went to college with his brother. He got the job. And, and one day he was kind of being mysterious, talking about his new job. And I needed, I was desperate for work. And so I asked him about it. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll recommend you. And I went and met with Leona. And um, she never said a word about what the job was. I had a resume. I think I had a briefcase with me. She never asked me to pull out the resume. Asked me a lot of questions about my relationship with my dad, which I was very confused by, and then sent me on my way. And Later on, I found out that she hired me and I was surprised and I was excited. And um, my friend Pax kind of, you know, put it in perspective and said, you know, it's not that big a deal. She hires everyone because nobody can do this job. And uh, that was kind of when I went, whoa. And, and so when I went to work first with this woman, Deirdre, and then this woman, Andy, who both had very different styles. And that was one of the things I learned with the Rusing is you had to develop a style. You know, you had to have what worked for you. And um, the women initially were far better at the job. And, and I did a virtual event recently with uh, former CIA spy Valerie Plain. And I was talking about that. And she said, of course, women were better spies. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, but she also, she then started talking about why women were better spies. And she said it was true in the CIA too. She said, women are better at reflecting and deflecting than men are, you know, and women have a, a better ability to kind of mold themselves, you know, uh, you know, kind of turn into the chameleon to fit the situation and make things work. Right. And, and I definitely, you know, the, the women that were doing this job in the beginning were far better than my buddy uh, Pax and I, we struggled. We, we just weren't doing very well, but we needed the job. So we just kept working harder and harder and harder. And then eventually we began to realize that the reason we were having trouble is, you know, we were, calling at the time female assistants and female receptionists. And as soon as we kind of went to the executives and kind of were guy to guy, you know, bro, broing it up, all of a sudden we started to get the quality of information that the, that the women had already been getting. And that was a big breakthrough for us. Well, I was actually thinking, you know, women use gender to their advantage, let's say, and, and you did that too. And, uh, you know, there were a yeah. lot of, there were a lot of women that you schmoozed over the phone and, and in real life using your looks and using your sex appeal and whatnot. And I feel like we leave that territory to women a lot of the time, but it plays both ways. Right. I right. mean, yeah, you can, you can use it to, to your advantage. So that, that was fun too. So as I mentioned, I mean, the book is this really fun ride and if it stayed in that realm, it would be awesome but but like i said there are these these bigger larger more universal themes and stories in here like you said i mean at some point you wrote this suicide note that wasn't totally uh you know an actual suicide kind of a fictional suicide note but it was at a you know a very low yeah point yeah. in your life yeah. and um you know you were pretty honest with alcohol you know i mean there were just a lot of heavy topics in here and so tell me a bit about how much you gave consideration to okay it's a fun it's a fun story but i also want to communicate some pretty big themes and at what point did you look at those kind of bigger thematic issues of failure redemption mm. grit you know kind of all those those big right. things that underpin this story yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the things about writing a memoir is, you know, you you 
got to do the best you can to tell the true story and the whole story. And, you know, and it's impossible to really do that. You know, you're not going to get, you can't get in everything. You shouldn't get in everything. You're going to forget some things. You're going to miss some things later on. You're going to find out that maybe this little detail wasn't exactly, you know, right or, you know, whatever, but you got to, for the most part, tell the truth. And so, you know, here I am rusing people and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and taking advantage of people, deceiving people, you know, which again, you know, I didn't feel good about. And then when the crash of 2008 comes, I have to get a real job because the spying market has completely dried up because corporations forget about hiring to spy on their competitor. They're just trying to survive. Right. And, and, you know, those of us who remember that those times, you know, that, those, you know, that was a really bad time for a long time. You know, that was a, you know, the markets were just hammered. Real estate was freaking devastated for, you know, a couple of years, two, three, four years before things started to come around. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity, certainly not in the spy world. So I had to take a real job in corporate America. I went to work for this executive recruiting firm. And much to my surprise, the lying done in person, face to face was, in my opinion, worse than the lying that I had been doing on the telephone. And, you know, people would lie to me. They knew they were lying to me. They knew I knew they were lying to me. And yet it was kind of like the best lie wins. And there was so much backstabbing and politics. And it was really shocking to me. And uh, so, you know, for the reader, I think that that section is kind of fun because you know, you're seeing me duping people and rusing people and then all of a sudden the tables get turned, right? And then I'm the one getting duped and and I'm a little kind of naive, you know, and I was, you know, uh, you know, I, I just figured we were all on the same team and we're here to help each other and make the company successful. And and everybody was Wall Street cutthroat out for themselves. And um, and then of course coming out of that, you know, that was definitely those 18 months where I worked at that firm, that was definitely the low point of my life, my whole life. And so I had to talk about that, you know, because that low point, that depression, you know, where I wrote that fictional suicide note, but I was very depressed, that depression took me right back to the creativity hmm. and, and started me on this amazing journey, which I'm so blessed and grateful for. You know, it's like, I, I feel like I found myself again. You know, I, I had lost myself and then found myself again. I have a line in the book I really like, which is a lifetime of lying had led me to the truth. Yeah, maybe if you write down the long linear line of anybody's story, these themes are just going to pop up because that's, you know, the nature of life. That's, how life right. that's right. That's right. You're up, you're down, you know, you're down, you're up. You yeah. know, I mean, it's like the, my wife jokes that, you know, you see those, you know, uh, you know, the biographies and they're always the same. It's rags to riches to rags <laughs> to redemption. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not rocket science. Write that down, you know, and then just <laughs> make your memoir like that. Well, and it's got to be because if it was all the high, you know, we probably would have lost sympathy at some point, you know, I mean, everybody likes to feel connected to the character who's, you know, going through some hard times. My guest today is Robert Kerbeck. The book we're talking about is Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. You're listening to Writers on Writing. So talk a little bit about, because I was fascinated by how these other two very disparate careers, acting and corporate espionage, really had to, I mean, they're all kind of sides of a prism of writing, you know? I mean, it's all, writing is just a little bit of lying, right? It's a little bit of invention. It's a little bit of yeah. character creation, which is what you've been doing all the way along. And I'm sure that point's not lost on you, but if you can talk about kind of 
scooping out the best of those two prior careers to help you in this one? Yeah, I mean, it, I think what's strange is the career that I'm having now as a writer feels like the right career for me. And I wish I had been doing it all along. You know, I, I don't know why I didn't do it all along. I mean, I, I know some of the reasons, like I said, I, I really couldn't sit still. And uh, and I'm also a um, a writer on a computer. Of course, you know, back in the day, um, you know, you, you know, there was a lot of long, you know, just kind of longhand writing. So, you know, when finally computers really you know, you could get a really nice Apple laptop in the, I guess it was about the mid nineties. And even though I didn't start writing then, th that really changed things for me to be able to write on a computer and just makes the editing a lot easier. And I, I mean, I know sometimes, you know, I would be at a writer's conference and the workshop leader would be suggesting that you write in longhand and you should definitely do this in longhand and you should do that in longhand. I mean, you couldn't pay me to write anything in longhand because <laughs> I, I know I would never read it again, let alone type it up or something. So, so yeah, so that was, that was kind of a, a, a an interesting thing where I, I feel like I'm, I'm back where I should have been all along. But the thing that the acting gave me is I feel really great about writing dialogue Mm. Um, I feel like that's one of my strengths, you know, uh, and, and, and not even like one of my strengths. I mean, that is just something I feel really good about writing dialogue. And of course, you know, remember I read, you know, I'm probably read more plays in my life than I've read books. And I remember when I went to Tin House and was chatting with Ben Percy, who's a, you know, a, a wonderful writer. And, and I think I was feeling a little intimidated because, you know, everybody was so re well read and they're talking about this book and that book. And I haven't read that. And I haven't read this. And I think I said something that to Ben and, and, and he said that to me, he said, he said, I haven't read a play since high school. How many plays have you read since then? And I was like, mm, <laughs> thousands. And he said, <laughs> he's, he, you know, he's like, but that, he's like, that's literature, you know? And so, you know, that's, that's your strength. And so it was just kind of an interesting thing. Cause you know, we, you know, we were friends with, you know, poets and there are people that are writing nonfiction and people writing fiction. There are people writing plays and people writing screenplays and, and they're all, slightly different forms of, of literature. And they all bring, you know, the poet is, you know, really um, obviously, you know, the, the language, you know, that a poet has and a poet uses is a lot better than my language, that's for sure, you know? And, you know, so we can learn from those different forms. But I think that that's what acting gave me was the facility with dialogue. And I encourage people, you know, uh, read a play, you know, go and read The Glass Menagerie, you know? I mean, first of all, you're gonna have a great time because it's one of the best plays ever written. Um, but it's also gonna really help you with dialogue and also story, right? Because, you know, with a play, you know, you've really got to keep the story moving. People are sitting in their seat, right? Watching this play, you know, you don't have a whole ton of time to waste. So it's just interesting. So, you know, that's something I, I, I think is a, is a good thing to do. Like I, you know, I read poetry because that helps me with language, which is not one of my strengths. And maybe some other writers might find it interesting to, to take a look at some, some plays. That's such great advice because you're right in plays you all and you can't rely on setting so much right so it really is just two characters three or four characters in a room and dialogues all they've got so yeah, yeah that's that's great advice I actually wanted to point to your author's note at the beginning of the book because I think a lot of memoirs get caught up there too of how much liberty can I take with the dialogue that happened 20 or 30 years ago and so I, I really loved that author's note at the beginning to kind of <laughs> set people straight and give a lot of latitude, which is basically, this is conveys the emotional truth or the, you know, the spirit of the truth of how this happened. I don't know if every single word was, you know, said the way it was, but this is basically right. factually what happened. Right. And so I think that 
lets a lot of people off the hook because they're like, I can't remember what, you know, Edith said that night, but you know, well, yeah, and you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, and by the way, even if you thought you remembered exactly what Edith said, and we pulled a videotape out that doesn't exist, but let's just say it did exist. And all of a sudden we played that scene with Edith, the dialogue that you were sure was correct would be wrong. Right. Because, you know, and maybe not not every time, but many times. Right. So I I think that that's the thing about memoir is you're what I was trying to do is capture the spirit of what actually happened. Right. But it's impossible to remember, you know, every everything in this. And if you get all bogged down and you're going to call your your cousin, you know, uh, you know, Tim up and say, Hey, what did I see? You know, and if you start going to all that stuff, boy, I think you could get, I don't know, it, it, that would seem, you know, like in my book, what am I going to do? Call OJ Simpson in Florida on the golf course and say, Hey, OJ, <laughs> did you really talk about beating your wife up on Friday night in front of me and the crew? You know, right. now, fortunately that was takes because we were on a set and those outtakes you can view on YouTube. You can literally view him saying, what I talk about in the chapter on OJ in the book. Okay. That was really fun part of this book because I did view that. <laughs> yeah. And right. there was some action figure or baseball card, you know, trading card made of you. Like a lot of these things you can, you know, through the magic of the internet and Google, right. you can go find a lot of these things. And so it was almost like this interactive adventure yeah. book where you're like, I'll go watch that episode of sisters because, <laughs> because <laughs> well, I can, you. because I, I think can. I get paid like 12 cents if you watch that. So I appreciate it. <laughs> and I was such a fan of sisters. So it was, yeah, it was a great it was, show. It was a really was great, a great show. show. Yeah, it yeah, was a great yeah. show. So you mentioned publishing a couple of these as independent, either essays or, you know, stories elsewhere, the Yoko Ono chapter. And um, I forget the other chapter you mentioned, but um, OJ. OJ. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Did you, because I think, you know, writing a big book is sometimes intimidating for a lot of people. And so mm-hmm. breaking it into these kind of bite-sized chunks of, I only have to write 15 pages yep. about this particular incident. I don't know if that, you know, kind of lured you into a sense and, of. And, and, you know, no, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. What I've learned, you know, the secret for me is because I started, you know, when I came back to writing, I started writing short stories and I love short stories. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm writing short stories, writing short stories, writing short stories. And then when I wrote my first book, it really was a collection, Malibu Burning. It was a collection of 22 stories about this terrible fire from all these different people's perspectives, you know, so that it was just linked by the fire. And so when I wrote, you know, ruse, I said, you know, I've just got to write 20 chapters. That's it. You know, I've got to write 20 short stories and they're going to be linked by rusing, acting and my family, you know, those three things. And I do think, you know, and we talk about this in my writer's group now, you know, because people do, they get overwhelmed by the idea of writing a book. And I say, forget about the book, just write me a chapter. And then when you finish that chapter, write me one more. And then when you finish that chapter, write another one. Don't think about it as a book. Just think about it as a bunch of short stories. And you're going to, you already have this theme in mind because you know, you're writing your memoir and, you know, all of a sudden you have 15, you know, 15 page chapters or 20, 15 page chapters and you have a book. Did you have kind of little post-it notes around your office? It's told pretty linearly, but Mm. I don't know if you had, you know, post-it notes around the office or how, if you were rearranging, you know, okay, I mentioned my father here time for a little more dad here time for you know (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think the editor was really helpful with that because the editor cut a bunch of stuff out and God, he was so right to cut. I already knew the book was a little bit long. And, you know, that's something else I'll tell writers too is shorter is better. Mm. Shorter is better, especially for a first time author, because, you know, when you submit your book for publication or you submit your book to get an agent, you know, they're not going to read through the slow parts. They're just not. Um, And as a matter of fact, here's a great story for your for your audience. My publisher rejected the book. Oh, yeah. The publisher (laughs) who published my book rejected it the first time. And what happened was the publisher rejected it, but the publisher sent a love letter to my agent. And my agent shared with me um, the love letter because we were getting a lot of positive responses, but they were rejections. And there were a lot of the responses. They came back and said, this is going to be a great movie. This is going to be a great TV show, but not for me. You know, and I'm like, I'm like that. I could not understand. I'm like, wait a second. You know, that makes no sense to me. And um, so this this publisher rejected it and they sent back a note saying, boy, we love this. 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 They would love that. But uh, we're going to pass. And I mean, when I say a love letter, I mean, it was like two paragraphs of positives and then (laughs) but we're going to pass. I could not believe it. It made no sense to me whatsoever. And the only thing I could think of is that my book at that time was was a little too fat in the beginning. And there were two chapters, chapter two and three, that, you know, there were two chapters and they were both on family history. And I already knew they were too long. And when I got that note, I said, that that's what happened. This guy just got, you know, he got lost. And I took those two chapters and I combined them into one and cut all this other stuff out. And, and so it was like 30 pages went to 15 pages. And not just cutting 15 pages, which is important, but now it was chapter one, chapter two, chapter, and then boom, chapter three, we're into, you know, there's like a prologue where there's the corporate spying. And then chapter one and two are kind of set up family history. And then chapter three, we're back into corporate spying. So we're only away from spying, which again is my A story for two chapters. We have it in the prologue. We don't have a chapter one. We don't have a chapter two. Now we have a chapter three, right? Whereas before we didn't have a chapter one. We didn't have chapter two. We didn't have a chapter three. It was too long away from the ruse. The book is called The Ruse, right? it was too long away from the ruse. And I, as soon as I got that note, I said, I know that's what happened. And so I have a, a publicist friend who is a big publicist in the music industry and has a bit of a reputation. And I said, will you do me a favor? Will you call this guy and call him and ask him if he'd be willing to have a phone call with me? So my, my friend does it. And because my friend has a bit of a you know, reputation, even though he's not a book publicist, but you know, he's, he's represented a lot of famous people in the music business. You know, he got the call back because you know, the publisher looked him up and saw he was a real guy and a sort of a famous guy. And, and so he said, okay, you know what? Yeah, I'd be willing to talk to Robert. And so when, he, when I got on the phone with him, the first thing I said was, I said, hey, I just wanted you to know I've been working on this and, uh, and, and fine tuning it, cutting it. And I said, as a matter of fact, I combined chapters two and three into one chapter. And I could see his eyes light up. I could see it on the Zoom call. And he went, he goes, that's exactly what happened. He goes, it was too long. And I said, yeah, that's why I cut it. And then he's like, okay, okay. And then he wanted the book and he bought the book right there on that phone call. What? I know. Could he not have just told you that? Okay, that's right. <laughs> well, I, I no, but I, and here's my point for, for, for the writers out there is that same thing with acting, by the way. When you go in, I'm going to digress here. So writers, hang with me for a second. When you go in and for an audition, right, um, and they they love you, and you get called back, and uh, they love you again, and then they bring you back, you know, for the final callback, and maybe it's the third time, maybe it's the fourth time, but whatever it is, where you're in the room, and they're they're going to make the decision that day. 
Your whatever you do, if you get hired, that's your performance on the set. That's it. That's the final performance. Nobody's giving you any notes. You know, mm. they're not bringing you in for rehearsal. You know what I mean? Now, look, of course, there's some exceptions to that maybe if you're on a big box office movie or something, you know, and, and there's a, you know, maybe they'll have some rehearsals. But for the most part, whatever you do in that final thing, that's what they're hiring. So my point translating that to writing is, is that that book that you send in, you know, when you submit for agent representation or you submit for a publisher, that's supposed to be the finished product. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you know, they're right. not looking to like fix your book. They're not looking to go, hey, uh, Robert, chapter two and three, you need to combine them into one chapter. So this publisher, you know, he may have recognized that. I don't think he did recognize it. I think he just knew, you know, it took a little while to get going. I think that, that, that you know, that, that was the thing is it just took a little while to get going. And when all of a sudden he saw that, I saw that and recognized that. And then we had this conversation and we, and we talked about my acting background and how, you know, when you're in a play, a play is a very collaborative experience. You know, you're working with actors, you're working with the director. And if it's a new play, you're working with the writer too. And so I think he saw that I wanted to be collaborative and I was going to be very open to any other notes and suggestions he had. And so then he bought the book and then he, we went through an editing process, which really was just simply him cutting and trimming and tightening. And I think he cut, you know, I think the book was like, uh, maybe like 98,000 words and he cut it to about 90,000. So he cut another 8,000 words, you know, after I had cut like about 3000 words when I combined chapters two and three. So, you know, the book ended up getting cut over 10% from what I thought was the final draft. And I, you know, and I think I got kind of lucky that it got taken in, in that condition. And again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to tell writers, that's why you need a writer's group. You need people that are reading that, you know, and people in your writer's group that are getting published because you need people that have a sense of what is working in the real world, because I'm here to tell you shorter is better for the first time writer. If you're trying to get an agent, your agent trying to get you published and you don't have much of a track record, shorter is better. It just is. It just is. I also wanted to point to the brilliant way you get in and out of the memoir without giving too much away, but it's circular. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people have a hard time knowing how to enter a story and how to get out of it. And I think that's a key to a lot of, a lot of writers is start with, end with where you started and, you know, kind of bring Mm -hmm. the whole thing full circle, which is exactly what this did, uh, prologue to epilogue. And I I don't know if that was obvious to you from the beginning that you were going to open with rusing this woman and you'd close with, with a conversation with her, but. Um... I, I think I kind of knew that. Yeah. Because I knew, you know, without, again, without giving too much away, her circumstances were so powerful and compelling that it just, it just, there was no way that I could not, you know, this, this, this was the woman that I kind of developed the strongest relationship with. And yet, you know, she knew me as someone that I wasn't, you know, and yet we had this friendship you know, because we had been talking for years and years, and yet I was just rusing her all this time. So uh, I knew that that was, that, that was, it was important to come back to her. And you cared about her. I mean, you I were rusing yeah. her, but, but you did have a friendship of sorts, even if she didn't know your name. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and you know, there, there's a line that, and again, this is true, you know, she said to me at one point, you're one of my favorite people at the firm, mm. oh. which is, which, which was beautiful, but also a sad statement for corporate America because I'm one of her favorite people right. from she'd never met. She'd never met me. And I wasn't who I said I was. Right. You know, it doesn't kind of want to make you go and get a job in corporate America now, does it? 
I was just going to say this damn country. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about finding agents and publishers and all that. We, we kind of, you know, showed our cards here a little bit, but first of all, well, and also tell me about the Malibu Writers Group, because you founded that and um, you've alluded to how important these writers groups are, but tell me a little bit about how it functions when you show your work, because I think that's a really tricky mm. thing if I think writers show their work sometimes too soon. Sure. And um, yeah, just kind of how you guys function together, you've been going for a decade. So how does that yeah. work? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't think I'd ever get anything published without the notes of the writers group. I really feel that that's just a fact. We meet every three weeks and we, you know, have kind of a page count, word count. It's about, you know, 5,000 words that you can submit every three weeks. Everyone submits every three weeks so that you're getting your work read constantly. And um a firm believer that we we have to say positive things about people's work because you know writers it, it can get pretty pretty brutal pretty fast and so you know I would say we talk about what we liked what we loved and what could be improved and <laughs> we don't always do that but I try um, <laughs> we we also don't let the writer speak because you know generally what happens in a writer's workshop or in a writer's group is that the writer just explains why people aren't getting it and and and, and then the, my favorite one is well when you read the next chapter you'll understand yes um, right 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 and and what i say it to, to you know to my fellow uh, writers is we don't care we don't care what you say <laughs> we don't care what you think we don't care how you explain yourself we all we care is about the words on these pages you sent in that's all we care about yeah, because everything you're, you're not going to be there when I'm reading the book, writer. You know, right. you're not going to be there to explain that. Oh, the answer to fix that confusion is coming in 16 pages. No, no, no. So you know, so we just focus on the text and we try to make the writer be quiet. We don't know. Again, we don't always succeed in that, but you know, strive for excellence, not perfection. But yeah, so that's that's kind of what we do. And we've how had many, a lot. How many? Of, uh, how many of there are you? It it varies. You know, it kind of goes, you know, COVID, you know, things got a little less, but, you know, I would say the most we've ever had would be maybe 10, 12. Wow. And then, you know, usually it's five to six. I think the ideal number is around six to eight, because what's cool about getting a lot of different opinions is, you know, if you're in a writer's group and there are two people or there are three people, you know, one person could have an opinion, but that opinion just might not be right. It's it's not that the person's not trying to be helpful or, you know, but we all are off on things sometimes, right? But when you have a writer's group and you're getting five people's notes, six people's notes, you can pretty quickly see, you know, when three people have a problem with something, well, that's a problem, you know? You know, if, if everybody was kind of confused by a character, well, you got work to do. So I, I think that, you know, that, like that, that, you know, six, five, six, seven people's kind of the sweet spot for a writer's group. That's a lot of reading for you guys, because if it if, is, uh, yeah, yeah, six, yeah. eight, 10 people are turning yeah. in 5,000 yeah. words. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, our group meets on Thursdays every three weeks, and then you have to submit the Friday before the Thursday. So you get about a week to read. And, you know, what I just do is I just read one submission a day. And so if they're, you know, seven in the group, obviously I'm not reading my own submission. So then I've just got to read, you know, one a day for the six days. Right. So, and I, you know, I find that's not that big a deal, you know, it's not that big a deal. And remember the, the people in, in this particular group are, you know, you know, pretty accomplished writers so that, you know, you're not reading something that, you know, requires, you know, a tremendous amount of editing. 
And sometimes, you know, when we do have group people come into the group, you know, they're maybe a little bit earlier in their writing career. And then what we do is we, we just maybe have a little a shorter word count until we kind of get people up to get them up to speed with where you're coming in with material and, and you know, that kind of thing. And I also think that I, I, I just think every writer, you know, should have a writer's group. First of all, it's free. Right. It's right. And, right. uh, you know, so there's that. And it's just a great way to make community. We share, you know, information and leads all the time. You know, hey, you know, you got to make sure you reach out to this person, you know, because you've got a book out now. I think they'll cover it. Um, you know, I think they'll, you know, so, you know, there, there's that part of it too. And then, of course, there's the, you know, just it's nice to, to be with people that are struggling with the same things you're struggling with, which sure. is, you know, creating something out of nothing. Sure. And I know you've made good use of writers workshops over the time. I don't know if they're even going again after COVID, but I know you did Tin House and Vermont and Breadloaf and, mm-hmm. and you've really used those groups to your advantage in terms of networking. And, you know, I, I think that's important. I mean, how else are you going to do it? There's, there's no way. I mean, you know, every event that I've gotten for this new book ruse, and then there's a publicist, you know, and there's a publisher and they're working hard, but every event I've got, not every event, most of the events I've gotten have come from me and from people that I've met, you know, people that I've met at writers conferences, people that I met, uh, they interviewed me or they wrote about my prior book, Malibu Burning, almost all of those people covered roots, right? And so you develop this network of people, you know, you have me on your show for Malibu Burning, now you have me on your show again, thank you for that. And that's kind of what a writer needs, you know, unless you really happen to luck into some great success, you know, that just, you know, your book goes viral and then it's just, you know, it's kind of, you know, everything's rolling downhill and you, you know, you're just, you're just going right. But for the most part, you know, I I mean, I'm here to tell you that I know promoting a book is not as hard as writing a book, but it sure feels like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's such a different skill set too, right? Yeah. But I kind of have that skill set, you know, I mean, I, you know, I started out in car sales, you know, uh, so, I mean, I have the ability to, to, you know, promote a a little bit. And I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm here to tell you, it is hard work. It really is. And so, you know, again, you know, when you get that agent and you get your book published, you know, be ready to roll up your sleeves and call everyone you, you know, you met at a writer's conference and, you know, in, in your writer's group and, and, you know, your, your friend who's a journalist and, you know, and say, hey, who do you think would be interested in covering this? You know, and, and can you recommend me to somebody that has a podcast and can, you know, and then you, you know, I mean, right now I'm reaching out to all of the true crime podcasts and, and I've had a lot of success. They're very interested in Roots. And so, you know, I've already done four or five, I have two or three more. And, and that's, I, I'm hoping that people listen to these programs, because if they do, it's, it's getting me a really, really nice audience, because it's an audience that is already geared to wanting to read, uh, you know, a book about, you know, corporate spies. Well, and you had so many legs up because you and Valerie Plain went to all the way through school together and she did a podcast with you that was great. And, you know, just contacts in Hollywood and all all of those things. So you are coming at it from the best possible position you could be. And you're still saying it's really difficult. So, yeah, 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 I I think it's important for people to hear that because, yeah, did you have the same agent for both of these books? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Okay, And the same. I can't remember who published Malibu Burning. MWC Press. Okay. So a different, different press. Yeah. Different publisher. How has it been working with these small presses? Some people, I mean, I know <laughs> you're having a hard time getting promotion. Everybody is. I feel like if you were at yeah. Random House, I mean, you'd I, say the same thing. I mean, my publisher is fantastic. I love him. He's a great guy. 
The publicists, same thing. They're working hard, super transparent. You know, I, I just think at the end of the day, your average small press, they, they don't have a lot of juice, so to speak. You know, they just don't have a lot of pull. And so it really requires, like I said, the author to roll up their sleeves and get to work. I'm reaching out to people that I don't know on Twitter. I'm reaching out to people I don't know on LinkedIn. I reached out to this guy that runs Cybercrime Magazine uh, on LinkedIn, and he said, I love this. Uh, and, and they had me on their podcast today. Great. So those are things I think that you know a lot of writers might not want to do or not feel comfortable doing. But I, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't do these things, especially if you're with the small press, you know, nobody's going to read your book, you know, other than your, your immediate circle of friends and family. And, you know, you know, I have another book done and I, you know, I, I know that if the, if the more successful this book is, the more likely I'm going to be able to sell the next book. Right. right. Because, you know, people are looking at your sales numbers and all of that stuff that we don't, we never want to think about, but we have to think about it. And if you're, if you don't have a lot of sales numbers, if you don't have a lot of positive reviews, if you don't have a lot of positive publicity, why is someone going to take another book? Why, you know, why are they going to, you know, you know, especially a small press? Well, and the blessing is the curse because, as I mentioned <laughs> off air, we get you know just a fire hose of books sent mm. to you know. There's a fire hose of books out there, but there's so many mediums for podcasts out there now, and so many ways to promote your book. And so, yeah, I mean the you know it's the good side and the bad side. A lot of people are publishing books, but there's a lot of way to promote books too. The good, yeah, I mean, the, I, the cream will rise to the top, right? Well, I, I, I th and I think especially if you're doing some of these things that I'm I'm talking about. Somebody told me that you should be promoting your your book at least six months after the release, hmm. at least maybe a year, right? Maybe, and yeah. so, okay, so if you're promoting it four months before, which is about right, four months, and then six months after, I mean that's that's you know basically a year and maybe more, right? And so, and I, I think that's I never heard anybody talk about that at Bread Loaf or Tin House or BCFA. I never heard anybody talk about book promotion and what to do, you know. And I mean, I know you can go online and there's a seminar and you can pay for this and do that, but I've never heard that at any of the conferences, which I think that they, I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, they're really focusing on the craft and, and getting published. But, you know, once you are published, you know, how do you get your book read? How do you get it in book clubs? How do you get, you know, on podcasts? How do you get reviews? You know, how do you do all of these things so that your book gets around? Because unless there's some lightning that strikes, it's hard. It's really yeah. Well, to your, you, so you mentioned this, I, I don't know if we're allowed to say this, so I can cut it out if we're not, but you mentioned uh, this, this might be on the way to a TV series, which yeah, is yeah. absolutely what you can see it as um, in addition to being a book. So that's, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, so have and, and another I'll, life. Right. And then that's a game changer, right? You know, yeah. I mean, if you're, if your book gets made into a series, well, then not, <laughs> you're not going to have to worry too much. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but at, at my publisher, you know, of course I've been keeping them in the loop on this, on these meetings and we have one on Monday and one on Tuesday. So I probably will know uh, next week, uh, you know, what the response is. So, you know, say a prayer, fingers crossed, uh, hold a good thought for ruse. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but my publisher was pointing out that even if the, you know, the, the show gets, you know, the green light, and even if we start making it, I'm not going to see anything, he's not going to see anything in terms of book sales until the show comes on the air, right, mm, which could right. be, e even if they give us a green light next week, that's yeah, probably a year or two years before it's on the air, right, you got to 
you know, write the pilot, and then you got to write the season scripts, then you got to cast it, then you got to shoot it, then you got to edit it, then you got to time it in the market when, you know, so, you know, that, that, you know, I don't know the TV world that uh, on that end, well enough to say, you know, I know, when your book gets accepted from for publication, you know, they say it's about 18 months before it comes to market, right, which has always shocked me at how long that is. So I don't know what that time frame is for a TV series, but I, I know it's not a month. I know it's not four months, probably, you know, you know, nine to 15 months would seem about right. So yeah, so then my book isn't, you know, it's not getting any kind of wind in its sails until the show is on the air. Right. Well, you have given us a wealth of advice and stuff mm-hmm. to think about. Is there um, is there other advice we missed that you like to to tell people? No, I mean, you know, I mean, look, I always tell people buy your friends' books, <laughs> um, buy your friends' friends' books. A friend of mine the other day said, "Well, you know, I, I'm not a reader." I said, "I don't care if you read my book; just buy it." <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, support your friend. Like, you know, would you buy me a a beer at the bar? I would hope you would. I would buy you one, right? So, you know, if we're going to buy each other a drink, why not buy the book? If you read the book and you love it, great. If you try to read it and it's not working for you, that's okay. You know, you know, we, you know, we're not every book is in every book, every reader's cup of tea, right? But support, you know, be a good literary citizen, buy books, buy your friends' books, buy your friends' friends' books, because when your day comes and it will come, you, that's what you're going to want people to do, you know, so it, it's kind of like the proverbial, you know, you know, pay it forward. You know, for a guy who spent so many years lying, you're a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else said that to me. They said, you know, I think the reason you were so good is that, you know, you were essentially a good guy who kind of got a little off track. Right. There you go. So hopefully I'm back on track. So thank you. That's a nice thing to say. There you go. And how do we find you? You've got a great website. Yeah. RobertKerbeck.com. And uh, Twitter and Instagram at Robert Kerbeck. So, you know, pretty, pretty easy to find. And uh, if you read the book and you like it, please let me know. I'd love to hear from readers. You know, there's a lot of good conversations I've had with people that have already been kind of reaching out and going, oh, my God, Madonna, I didn't know that. So, you know, feel free to, you know, share your stories of, you know, Kevin Spacey or OJ or, you know, the, some of the characters in the book. I've gotten some things that were really funny from these kind of conversations. We can find you on YouTube with OJ for the murder. That's right. That's right. Don't try those exercises at home, folks. Ah, no, no, no. (laughs) And you can watch the the FX series with Cuba Gooding playing OJ. They recreated the OJ video in that, which meant an actor got hired to play me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know. That was that was definitely. Now, of course, did he call me for advice about what I was thinking in those moments? No, no. Yeah, no. no. I don't think he was a very (laughs) I don't think he was a very serious actor. (laughs) Robert Kerbeck, thanks so much for coming back on. This was so much fun. Oh, what a pleasure. What a pleasure. Thank you. That was Robert Kerbeck. The book is Ruse, Lying in the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're inviting you to visit our Patreon page. There you can find some little perks we're offering to listeners like you. If you've tuned into our show and like what you've heard, consider supporting us. You can even offer up guest suggestions to hear more of what you want. You can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, M-A-R-R-I-E stone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcasts. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.net.
mykajabi.com. That's M-Y-K-A-J-A-B-I.com. That's all the time we've got for today. Tune in next week and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.